Listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. Joining us tonight on Global IQ Minute is Alyssa Ayers, a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, where her work focuses on India's role in the world and on U.S. relations with South Asia. Her book, Our Time Has Come, How India is Making Its Place in the World, was published just a few weeks ago, last month. From 2010 to 2013, Alyssa served in the Obama administration as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for South Asia. She is also the author of Speaking Like a State, a book that examines nationalism, culture, and politics in Pakistan. Welcome. It's great to have you with us on a day that's a little bit rainy, almost. It should make you feel at home as if you're a doing some research. A little bit rainy. It's like a monsoon <laughs> here. We braved the floods to get here. But we try you to make you feel me. welcome, you know. <laughs> Very much so. Thank you. So tell us how you were first introduced to India. You were a student at Harvard. I was. I was a student at Harvard. Actually, when people ask me this question, I like to take the opportunity to tout the benefits of study abroad programs. I, I studied in India on a college semester abroad program all the way back in 1990. That's actually how I opened this book because it was a very different time in India's own trajectory. But that was my first introduction to the country. Where did you study? Yeah, I participated in a program that was administered through the School for International Training. So it actually moved around. We were not part of an Indian university. We moved and began in Delhi, spent some time in Udaipur and Rajasthan, went down to Ahmedabad and Gujarat, had a family homestay in Surat for a week, which was really interesting, and then back to Delhi. You know, I used to work at the Institute of International Education. So, I love uh, it. Yes, yes. So you went on to University of Chicago. For my MA and my PhD, yeah. What did you write your doctorate on? I wrote my doctoral dissertation on the challenge of language and nationalism in Pakistan, which later became the book you referred to, Speaking Like a State. So let's talk a bit about your new book. Is there a time that you've identified when India really turned the corner that it decided it didn't want to be part of the non-aligned anymore, but wanted to take a different direction? Um, let me answer that with respect to economics. Okay. Most people generally see India's moment of economic reforms in the summer of 1991 as a kind of seminal moment in India's opening to the world. And I take a look at that at some length in the book because it really has been an important time in which the decades of a closed economy of trying to keep the world out kind of changed almost overnight. India found itself in a balance of payments crisis throughout the first half of 1991, underwent an IMF rescue package, and then implemented a series of fairly wide-ranging economic reforms. Those were carried out, in fact, by the man who would later go on to be Prime Minister of India, Dr. Mm -hmm. Manmohan Singh. At the time, he was Finance Minister under Prime Minister Narasimha Rao. So that was a pretty important moment for India just in terms of beginning to reintegrate itself with the world. Now, it's still also the case that a lot of economic reform in India takes place incrementally. <laughs> so there are many sectors in which we can find no shortage of people in the business world who mm -hmm. would say they'd like to see further reform in India. But it's also true that India's come a long way. Now, the current Prime Minister Modi, he really 
was elected on a platform of getting rid of corruption, eliminating mm -hmm. some of the bureaucracy, and yet we recently had a speaker from the Carnegie Foundation who wrote a book, Crime Pays, and, and really analyzed and lots of data about how many politicians in India are, are really pretty corrupt. A lot of money goes under the table. Is Prime Minister Modi making progress? So this is a great question, and that's an excellent book that you refer to when crime pays money and muscle in Indian politics. I've read that book, and I know the author well. It's a terrific book. Corruption is a big problem in India. There's no secret about this, that upwards of something like 25% of Indian politicians have some kind of criminal case lodged against them. People are aware of this because there are records. Filings are required by the Election Commission. So to some extent, that transparency actually provides this level of data about the problem. Prime Minister Modi came in and there have been no real scandals in his government like the types of scandals that characterized the second term of the previous Indian government. That said, there have been some challenges. We've just seen an announcement of an enormous scandal that has unfolded in an Indian state-owned bank, the Punjab National Bank, and details are still unfolding. It's not something that Prime Minister Modi, of course, is responsible for. His party isn't responsible for what happened in this bank, but it's clear that India still has a lot of work to do to make sure there's appropriate oversight, and, and the problems of corruption can really be banished. As you point out, India, within probably the next two decades, is really going to be an extremely strong and powerful nation. And yet, we don't seem to feel this unease about India that we feel about China. Mm -hmm. Is that because India is a democracy? And should we be more concerned about how India-U.S. relations may play out? The way I see this is that India is really a rising power that doesn't seek to overturn the global liberal order. What India seeks on the world stage is for recognition of its many accomplishments. Mm -hmm. You know, it has problems, but it has carried out democracy for seven decades. That's really something. It's a major contributor to global peacekeeping through its work in the UN. It is building up its military. It is now routinely referred to by U.S. secretaries of defense as a net provider of regional security. This mm -hmm. is really quite something. India is seeking to have a larger voice on the global stage. It is not seeking to reshape the world in order to to pay tribute to it or to kind of reshape the global order in a way that works only for India. It just would like another seat at the table that has its own And, and it, it would like a seat at a special table, the Security Council. It sure would. And this is not a new ambition for India. This has been an ambition that has been part of India's foreign policy for some time. It's hard for me as an analyst to justify why India does not have a permanent seat on the UN Security Council. If we were remaking the, the, oh, of course. Yeah. the permanent it would look five very today, it would look very different. There's yeah. no doubt about that. Well, it's so interesting that you've also devoted part of your career studying Pakistan. Mm -hmm. So a question I'm sure you're asked all the time is, how should the U.S. balance the relationship between Pakistan and India? And is there any hope that there will at some point in the relatively near future be better relations between those two countries. It's interesting that people ask me that less and less. I used to get questions about India and Pakistan a lot. Is that because uh, Pakistan matters less? I think it's because we used to think of South Asia as India and Pakistan. Yeah. Pakistan is beset by so many problems, and particularly the problem of terrorism emanating from its soil. 
And you have seen successive American administrations take on this question. The Trump administration is now taking this on in a very, very public way mm -hmm. and seeking greater changes from Pakistan. So the U.S. policy has, since the George W. Bush administration, sought to what's called dehyphenate the relationship between India and Pakistan. That the United States would no longer seek to balance what we do with one, with what we do with the other, but rather mm -hmm. we would pursue our interests with each country on separate tracks. Same effort to a degree with Afghanistan and Pakistan, though more difficult there. Much more difficult because of the presence of our troops and the international mm -hmm. presence and because of the supply line requirements. Well, one thing I've been reading about is that there's been a number of NGOs that have been operating in India that may be pushed out. Is that accurate? Some American NGOs and others? Is there more of an effort to say India first? And You know, this is acquiring increased focus now in the United States and in other countries that track issues like space for civil society. Mm -hmm. In 2010, the Indian parliament sort of revived and re-upped a version of a law focused on foreign contributions. It was a, a law designed to regulate foreign money coming in to the civil society space, whether it was from foundation grants or operating foundations. Mm -hmm. And so what they have required is for NGOs to submit annual reports and accounting statements. This level of scrutiny has met some challenges with some NGOs that haven't yet been able to appropriately file the reporting requirements that the law seeks from them. But what some people are now worried about, and this is a legitimate concern at a time when around the world you are seeing something of a squeeze on civil society organizations, some people are worried that there is more of a selective application of scrutiny to certain NGOs, particularly because the topics perhaps may mm -hmm. not be politically correct. So that is certainly a concern. This is an issue that I know members of Congress have raised during mm -hmm. hearings, actually. So that's something that I would continue to watch. Another thing is you're beginning to see more discussion about Prime Minister Modi's efforts to, maybe efforts is not the right word, but this schism between the Muslims and the Hindus. Is this something that concerns you as well? There's been a lot more manifestations and protests than perhaps in the past. What should concern everyone is some of these incidents of violence that have been unfolding in India, particularly some of the vigilante violence that has taken place. I'm not sure how closely you have been following some of these issues, but there have been some groups of young men who have decided to take it upon themselves to go after individuals under the suspicion of having eaten beef, for example. Mm -hmm. The cow is considered holy and, you know, for many Hindus, for most Hindus, and you would not, of course, eat beef but this doesn't apply to Muslims. In any case, there have been some violent attacks. Now, it's a small number of violent attacks, but nonetheless, it's quite disturbing. And I think the concern is not seeing more of a wholesale effort on the part of the central government to say, hey, this is not who we are as a country. We don't have this kind of violent attacks on people. Well, the leader needs yeah. to use the bully pulpit that they have, and, and that leads to me to- To stand up my, and send a message. And that yeah. leads me to, I'm afraid, will have to be our final question. How have the relations between the United States and India changed now under the Trump administration? 
Of course, we know Donald Trump Jr. will be giving a, a major speech on foreign policy in a few days in <laughs> India, which is a, a little hard to understand. But I am not sure what he'll say or who will help him write that speech. It certainly <laughs> is not his area of deep focus. That aside, yeah. you know, it's interesting. U.S.-India relations is really, a, it may be the only space in U.S. foreign policy that has very clear bipartisan support mm -hmm. in the United States and multi-party support in India. So you've seen the United States and India overcome what had been uh, the estrangement of previous decades, really from the Clinton administration forward, and that's carried through. So the Trump administration has moved to continue deepening and strengthening U.S.-India ties. Secretary Tillerson's first major foreign policy speech, he hasn't made that many, mm -hmm. was right prior to his visit to India. He gave a big speech about the free and open Indo-Pacific region and spoke quite a bit about working together with like-minded countries on challenges to the liberal world order, whether it's freedom of navigation or questions of predatory economics. He spoke quite a bit about that. I think he meant the Belt and Road Initiative. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that's what he was talking about. But it's been interesting to see the Trump administration carry this forward with India. Well, that's good to hear. Again, I want to congratulate you on being the author of Our Time Has Come, How India is Making Its Place in the World. It's published by Oxford Press in January. Let's go out and meet our members, those who braved the rain, and a lot of them did to hear you. Thanks for inviting me tonight. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.